0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, the Director of Communications and Public Policy here at the Greater Philadelphia Chapter. 2017 marks the Greater Philadelphia Chapter's 40th anniversary. Uh, This week, when we're recording this, it's also Star Wars Day, the 40th anniversary of Star Wars first coming out. And that's important today because we're talking about some all-stars who are helping in the ALS cause, advancing the mission, and Advancing Access to Quality Care for ALS Families. Um, I'm going to be speaking today on our podcast with Dr. Mary Sedaris, who is here at the clinic at Meridian Health System in Neptune, New Jersey. So this was obviously the furthest drive I've ever had to make, going from my house all the way to Neptune. And, uh, it's, it, but it's worth it because we're making sure that more people with ALS get good quality care, get connected to services, get the compassion and the support they need. Uh, before we get into the podcast today, I'd like to recommend that you go to www.alsphiladelphia.org to learn about our services. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, Pinterest, all those social media things, all at ALS Philadelphia. And of course, um, because it's our 40th year, check out alsphiladelphia.org slash 40 years to see some special videos, some links, and things attributed to our anniversary. With that in mind, that little background... Uh, Dr. Sedaris, thanks for taking time for our podcast today. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a very rainy day yes. here in New Jersey, and and I, I assume everywhere in the greater area, um, but I appreciate that we were able to find time today. Of um, course. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, you've been, you're a neurologist. You've been working on ALS for a little bit, um, but I think most of our listeners don't have any idea who you are.
1: So um, I actually um, trained um, as a neuromuscular fellowship in my neuromuscular fellowship was out of um, Cornell and Hospital for Special Surgery, where I was exposed a a lot during my training to management of ALS patients. Um, After fellowship, I moved to this area and uh, since had seen uh, ALS patients and diagnosed them uh, in my practice. And it became obvious as I was treating patients with ALS that there was a need for uh, physicians or neurologists with the training to take care of ALS patients. Um, I think through these patients who had also identified uh, at that time the lack of uh, this kind of care locally. we had been approached, or I had been approached uh, by uh, the ALS Association and the John Dancy Foundation to uh, make access uh, more easy for patients in this area uh, to get their ALS care. Um, uh, this is the initiative that started uh, uh, the Meridian Health System, now Hackensack Meridian Health System, to uh, open the ALS clinic. Uh, we were able, after discussions and uh, affiliation with the ALS Association, to get the clinic launched in January of 2016 and have since been seeing patients locally.
0: And you see a number of patients and the number of people that know about the clinic is growing Correct. all the time. We're trying to promote it. You guys are getting it out there. Absolutely. Um, does, was there anything that drew you to als in your original work because it's a complicated thing it's obviously a devastating diagnosis
1: so prior to my training uh, as a fellow quite honestly uh, as a resident you don't really get the exposure uh, uh fully on how to manage als patients and unfortunately uh, a lot of clinicians until now once they make this diagnosis um they stop there, and uh, I still see that happen a lot, particularly with them neurologists who, once they know their patients have ALS, uh, will just go ahead and put them on hospice. Um, the truth is, through my training, is I, I found that uh, there is a lot that you can do for ALS patients and their families to help them transition uh, as the uh, disease progresses and so it's different uh, stages. Um, and uh, this it's very complex, as you said, and it's emotionally intense at times because you... Uh, you see the patients progress, and you see the families uh, dealing with this progression, um, and you build a certain specific type of relationship with patients and family through throughout the disease process. Um, uh, that's what drew me to it to also bring the awareness. Of course, of course, the amount of research that's being done now in ALS is very interesting from an academic and intellectual standpoint. So that's it's I think is a good time to be treating ALS patients because we have. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, potential therapies coming out, and so from an academic uh, standpoint, it's also very interesting and challenging for a neurologist, I think.
0: And you like the challenge, but I really appreciate that you started that by talking about that there was a real human need, not just that they needed a good doctor, but um, my grandfather had ALS, I've been working here for six years, and it always is important to me to know that the professionals um, start with... People need better care. And that's that, you know, I really appreciate that that's where you're standing. And that seems to be Correct. how the clinic continues to grow here in Hackensack Meridian. Correct. So you have a clinic. What, what does the clinic do? Because the clinics, interdisciplinary care, um, they all approach ALS in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what, what does a clinic do, especially here?
1: Um, so we are, we're, I'm very lucky to be talking to you today from the outpatient rehab center, which I think is a, is a really good place to be running an ALS clinic um, because in the center of managing patients with ALS is obviously all kinds of rehabilitation, uh, PT, OT, speech, uh, uh, which we obviously have all those disciplines, uh, in our clinic. Um, uh, typical to every other clinic, we also do the respiratory assessment. We have the social worker, we have a nutritionist, uh, but, um, I think the, the rehab part is very important here. And, and again, the fact that we're running this clinic out of the core of the rehab center uh, says a lot. Uh, our, the commitment of the uh, uh, outpatient rehab team has been uh, phenomenal um, uh, to our success. Um, so uh, beyond the typical services that uh, patients will uh, get, um, from any probably ALS clinic, uh, we mimic those as I had been trained, uh, previously. So, um, I think the commitment of the team is, uh, is very important. We have m- more than one, uh, physical therapist. Uh, we have more than one speech therapy and language pathology, uh, people we are, uh, trying to always expand, uh, the services that we can offer so that patients don't have to travel so much, uh, for, um, for example, there are AAC evals, um, which is uh, uh, one, uh, an augmentative uh, communication devices. This is an AAC eval, is, is a separate entity that sometimes where a lot of clinics don't have it in the clinic, we are currently working on, for example, having our speech and language pathologists trained to do this kind of evaluation. So we're constantly looking to bring uh, more services to the clinic so that patients have to travel less uh, and get everything done more efficiently in one system, so.
0: And that's very important. You talk about all these different um, uh, specialists, seems like an easy word to remember, uh, who are here. And you recruit them, you you bring people in, whether they're in the system already or not. And so you have to make sure that they understand ALS. Correct. Because speech pathologists are great, but a lot of them don't know about ALS. Exactly. So there's a lot of training and retraining from all of you, I assume, to make sure that they're prepared and they continue to be prepared
1: correct our um, actually when we started doing this the um, uh, ALS Association uh, was kind enough to send specialists that would were doing uh, in services for our people before we even launched the clinic and so uh, and there is a constant learning uh, process that happens with what's new uh, in ALS in physical therapy or in Speech language pathology. There is a constant. It's a constant learning process, um, and the commitment of the team to continue learning and looking at new things is um, is there, and it's very important for us to continue growing.
0: And so, from my knowing about the other clinics that we have and mm-hmm. other clinics across the country. Yes. So you would have obviously, if you're the neurologist, you talk to the speech pathologist, and they'll say, "Oh, this was something different about Paul this week," or the dietitian right. will say, "You know, they're working on this. So you better." Watch that with, right? because you have, ALS is so complicated for, every patient, you don't just go through like, oh, it's a type A patient, type B patient, type C patient. Right. So all those, you collect a ton of data on each individual person to mm-hmm. make sure they're getting the right care plan.
1: Absolutely. Uh, we typically have uh, all our patients seen by the different specialties and then have our discussion after the clinic. And I think this discussion is very important because each one of us adds to the piece. Uh, and and we start looking at the patient uh, as a whole, not just the patient, but the patient and the family dynamics that are happening that sometimes affect our decisions, uh, what may be best appropriate for uh, for the patient and their family. So uh, this this roundtable discussion at the end is very important because we uh, we put our brains together and it is also very rewarding because um, you get to see how other members uh, on the team are just as important as you in contributing to the the better bigger picture of taking care of the patient. Uh, I think um, all of our team members appreciate that uh, roundtable feedback that we do.
0: Yeah, and I think oh. we appreciate, the, the ALS families appreciate that they're not just talking to someone who's taking up their time. Correct. Right. Uh, so are there any um, approaches that people might not know about? Because I think when people think they're going to the clinic, their first experience, are, are you the, like oftentimes the first person they talk to? Or not the first person, but the first place they go?
1: Um, uh you mean as far as diagnosis is concerned, or so they come here for diagnosis,
0: or mm-hmm. people refer to you?
1: Most people, most of the time, people have already had the diagnosis done, and mm-hmm. they're coming here to get their care. Yeah, and so uh, even though I may not be the first person to greet them when they come in, they will definitely see me. We kind of. Uh, uh, the way we do it is uh, musical chairs. Our patients will be in the room and uh, the specialties, sp- different specialties will walk in and out of the room. So um, because it's musical chairs, they may see us in a random order uh, every time. Uh, but we're constantly talking in the hallways. Uh, so if I see something that I need speech to take a look at and take a second look at or uh, uh, a splint that I think I think may work good for someone, I will... Uh, speak to OT on the side or, or speech on the side before they walk in the room and say, hey, could you give me feedback about this particular uh, issue? Um, and uh, and so there's a constant communication between me and the team members.
0: Yeah. Um, and you guys work with both the Joan Dancy Foundation and the ALS Association. Correct. Uh, yeah. A number of the people that come here they'll see our social workers. So you talk to some of the social workers involved with the ALS Association. Definitely. And so what, what um, I think For me, like I said, I had an ALS connection here. Yes. That um, follow-up that happens after the clinic visit is so important because you see people maybe every three months or so, six months? About
1: three months, six months, depending on how fast the disease progresses. Right.
0: And and then also because of how fast the disease progresses, so the follow-up with the social workers or their other doctors, that helps you decide maybe we should see you sooner or maybe we can just have a quick call or something?
1: Correct. So the biggest, I think... um, um, privilege that we have in our clinic is, uh, not only do we do our uh, one hour round around the table discussion about the patients, but our social worker, as you said, who is part of the John Dancy Foundation, will then, as necessary, go ahead and go into the homes of the patients, then they're very dedicated to uh, people with ALS in our area. Um, And they uh, will oftentimes, once they go in and do their in-home assessment, will come back with more feedback. And they also, since they were around for the discussion, we'll make sure that the recommendations that we made are appropriate and can be translated into the home. Uh, And I know a lot of clinics don't have that uh, uh, seamless transition from clinic to home, uh, but we are very fortunate to have that. We also are uh, currently working closely with palliative care from Meridian who have a similar service uh, where they can go into the homes of the patients uh, and uh, do further assessments. For example, one of the major issues that happens in uh, patients with ALS, particularly when they're still working and they cannot work anymore because of their disability, uh, they may have to apply for extensive uh, applications for like Medicaid or whatnot. And uh, our um, uh, social workers from Meridian can go in physically and help with this and get to the patients in their home rather than having the patient or the family members be running around trying to take care of the patient, trying to work on the application, it can get really overwhelming.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and so uh, I think that gives the patients and their families a sense of relief to know that uh, uh, it's not just the three or four hours that you spent in the clinic with us. This is gonna continue into your home and you're gonna have that support when you go
0: home. Yeah, and uh, I know talking to a lot of the folks everywhere, those kind of things like the insurance and Medicaid, because a lot of our folks are using Medicaid services, correct, um, which is why we need we need those to continue. Um, that that's a big part of what you're doing. And at, when you're talking about insurance and you're talking about funding and things like that, it's not this number; it's about actual compassionate care because you want them to get all the things that they need and deserve. Absolutely. And you talk about in the home. So another aspect of the thing is at home are the family and friend caregivers. So what do you do as a clinic to talk to those people someone comes in with their husband or wife or child or whomever. Mm -hmm. um how do you prepare them for what is coming or what they need to know
1: um you have to be um, careful how you approach this because every family is different and every personality uh is different you don't want to uh, overwhelm the patients but at the same time you want to make them prepared so um, you have to just feel the family and uh uh, be careful not to um, overwhelm them, uh, but still make them aware uh, and prepared. Uh, that sometimes will um, ask for us to maybe even take it slowly and not give them everything at the same time. For example, someone who comes in early in the disease, you you may it may not be appropriate to start talking about uh, pegs right away because people have uh, their own. Uh, feeling uh, about what you know strong feelings and they may change their minds and it's important to to understand that patients uh, can change their minds and are allowed so it, it is it is a sensitive dynamic but it's important to continue this conversation that's why it's important to continue the conversation not just in the clinic but when they go home because how a patient or a family feels today in the clinic can be very different after the first choking episode a month from now before their three-month follow-up mm-hmm. so um, you have to keep talking to the patients uh, and uh, and educate them but don't sort of overwhelm them either you yeah. have to know when to back off
0: and that's a that's a tough thing to learn and it's yeah. a it's probably an even tougher thing to teach
1: Yes, uh, some people do it better than others. It depends on um, on, on I think the, the team and the clinicians uh, that are communicating with the patients. But and it's a learning curve. Uh, um, we we you know we discuss that all the time. Uh, a lot of times I'll hear from my my speech and language pathologist saying, you know, uh, they they find it very difficult to tell a patient you have to be very careful because you really shouldn't be taking uh, you know or swallowing. It's not safe for you to swallow. Uh, but, um, uh, they have to say it uh, with, with the patient's feeling and reaction in mind, how to approach that. That takes practice, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that you guys, you've been at this particular clinic, even though you've been working on ALS for a number of years, Mm -hmm. for a year and a half. And I imagine that the care you're able to give and the understanding just improves with each weekly visit with with different patients. Um, so you tell people what to look for when they as a family member. Yes. So like like I said, my grandfather, so Tony, you make sure to look for this. Yes. Are there things when someone comes in first that you're like you notice right away or you, you think about when they're or later on, just like, oh, this is something I I really notice that's a problem with a lot of people with ALS or something people need to just be aware of?
1: Um it's not one specific thing because... Um, and, we'll tell you all the yeah. things you want. Okay. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, um, w- one of the things, for example, that's common. Let's talk a little bit about the cognitive issues that uh, ALS patients can sometimes have, which is a lot of times are underestimated uh, by family members. But uh, sometimes the judgment is very impaired mm-hmm. or patients are very impulsive. Um,
0: and to be honest, that was an issue in, in our family. It was, it's a hard conversation to have. It
1: is us. very hard because a lot of people uh, think that ALS is just a motor, uh, mm-hmm. and they don't think of the cognitive issues. Uh, but you have to prepare the patient's uh, family uh, that, you know, take it easy. It's it's They, they don't mean to do that. This is, a form, this, this is a form of maybe a frontal lobe dysfunction that's happening that's making them behave that way. Uh, they don't mean to be angry very quickly. They don't mean to, uh, for example, Will shove their mouth and put all the food at once and mm-hmm. then have a choking episode which is another thing that sometimes we see um so uh i take that as an example but uh, that goes for many other things uh, another common conversation when i start seeing that a patient is having respiratory dysfunction and they don't realize it and they don't want to have the conversation that's a tough one uh of what to do when
0: mm-hmm. and be
1: prepared Um uh, you sometimes have to get the family members involved uh, and and uh, try to have them spell it out so that what they want done is done and not in an emergency situation have a clinician in the ER that does not know the patient do something that the patient didn't want. So in the state of New Jersey, we have the POLST form, P-O-L-S-T, which uh, we can use as a, uh, a way to communicate and spell out exactly uh, in an emergency emergency situation how a patient uh, or their healthcare uh, proxy uh, want to deal with the choking episode or the respiratory distress at the very end of life.
0: Is um, that a New Jersey, you mean in the New Jersey health system, or is that a, like a government of, thing?
1: State of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It's now required in the state of New Jersey to, as much as possible, if you know that a patient would need a form as that. Uh, we, we in the Meridian system have all been in service, me and uh, our ALS clinic have been in service to, uh, uh, on how to fill this form and uh, we scan it uh, as a document and it becomes available uh, in the medical record to the emergency physicians, uh, so that if a patient ends up in the ER in our system, the physician who doesn't know the patient can have direct access to this form.
0: So that's sometimes some of the good or the importance of sometimes government and advocacy work is that you're working with people to say this is the kind of thing that people need so we're all on the same standard or things exactly. like that. yes. That's exactly. important because we do a lot of work with New Jersey legislators and a lot of them understand ALS now and they didn't they, before. before. Mm-hmm. And hearing from people like you helps them know let's not make a mistake. Right. Because a mistake can, can devastate someone, a minor one with them, when it comes to ALS. Absolutely. So you have to deal with a lot of those uh, difficult neurological issues. Dealing—this isn't that serious of a question, but it is. But understanding brain issues is really hard. (laughs) Like it takes a lot of reading and understanding, right? It does,
1: and it's a constant changing process because we're still learning a lot more. Uh, A couple of years ago, I mean, when I was training, the the gene that linked frontotemporal dementia and ALS were. not discovered yet. They were discovered towards sort of the, you know, midway through my training. And we always thought of them as separate entities, and uh, now we don't anymore. So it's constantly changing, which is why it's very interesting. mm
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have to keep on top of that, and you have to let your the people you work with know all that. There's people who come to you with a lot of questions.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: I, I find that the Internet is great, but it also you can have a lot of people who come in saying, Worried? Is this what's going to happen next? And you have to kind of assuage those kind of fears. Correct.
1: Um, you know, the internet is a double-edged sword. It depends where you get your information from, but uh, uh, it can be very resourceful. And I, I encourage uh, our patients to uh, to discuss what they read on the internet, uh, and uh, uh, we try to guide them with what is really evidence-based medicine. Is what we try to do in the clinic. Um,
0: yeah, that, that's important because you. It's more important to be right than to be fast. Correct. And so you guys are really involved. It's really nice to see that Meridian has gotten involved with the ALS Association. You've been at the Walk to Defeat ALS. Yes. Last year, you missed it for some silly reason, right? I
1: was actually there. I was uh, oh. I was there, but I didn't walk because I was nine months pregnant, ready to deliver. Right. But I was physically there.
0: <laughs> okay. I was going to give you credit because <laughs> you were having a baby. I tried to, tried to slide that in there. Uh, so... That gives you a whole new perspective on things. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard, like I said, we, my wife and I, we have two young kids. Like, it's hard for me to remember, like, what channel CNN's on, much less remember, like, these complicated issues with the brain.
1: Well, it's practice, too. That's why we call it the practice of medicine. The right. more you see, the more you recognize the patterns, and you become uh, comfortable. Uh, but you have to realize that we're always, it's always changing, and we're always learning more. So you have to constantly be on top of what's going on in the ALS world.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you talk to other neurologists then? And like,
1: I still talk to my mentor, of mm-hmm. course, um, and uh, and other uh, uh, ALS uh, pioneers, so to speak. Um, uh, we are now part of the NEALS as well, which is another way of uh, uh, just staying up to date with what's coming in an ALS. Um, they constantly have educating uh, webinars, uh, not just for... Um, Clinicians, but also for the LS patients as well. Um, so it's it's important to um, to keep all these ways of communication. Uh, there is um, conferences that are also very helpful. Uh, obviously the journals. Um, so
0: so that's important to know. So the neurologists like yourself are doing a lot of reading, a lot of learning constantly. Mm-hmm. Also learning at the actual clinic visits themselves. You're working with a whole team that's constantly improving and learning and and. Uh, understanding how to provide even better care and but you're also going beyond that you're connecting people with als association services like in-home care assistive technology let people know hey this is a speech issue Mm -hmm. you might want to get an ipad or get eye gaze or this or that um and then you connect them to the right person to do that correct and so the, the the clinic is you know ground zero you know the the home base for als but then like i said you guys were at the the Walk to defeat ALS at mm-hmm. Seaside. Yes. Uh, how did you like that?
1: That was a lot of fun. As some of our patients also came, uh, mm-hmm. which is, um, I think, is rewarding for them to see that all those people are here to walk for you and for other people like you. And uh, uh, it was a great experience. It was, uh, it was a great day.
0: Yeah, we had. Um, it was one of our biggest Seaside walks we've had. We had one family, um, who I think goes to a different clinic, but they were they had two hundred people. Yes. So it must be very, like I said, you don't just do this as a job.
1: No, you don't. It really isn't.
0: So it's as rewarding to you as a professional as it right. is to those families. Correct. So um, you want people to continue to do the walks. Um, I
1: think it's important because it raises awareness and getting more family members and your friends and family uh, aware of this is important. We are all doing our own uh sort of fundraising, small fundraising events. Uh, again, just to raise awareness in, um, in, in school systems, uh, um, in the gym we're trying to do some uh, educating as well. Uh, it's just important to get um, everyone to learn. You may not know someone who has ALS now, but you may find later or you hear of someone or you have a family member who gets diagnosed. And if you hear about it now, you may be able to get them where they need to get earlier rather than later. Um, The earlier you start on the track, the better outcome, I think, um, for the patients and their families.
0: And you're also teaching raising awareness in your own health system beyond your clinic, so that if someone comes in with vision problems or... Because people rarely go to you first, right? Right. They don't... It's rare that someone trips and thinks I have ALS. Right. And so you... You, you do a lot of outreach or making sure that other physicians to physicians know, Correct. like, hey, make sure you get in touch with us. They, they exactly. get their services early.
1: Exactly. We have uh, Meridian is working on community outreach regarding this stuff um, for primary health care physicians. Uh, other neurologists in the area that may not know that we've opened an ALS clinic here and they may still be uh, telling patients to travel out of state as it had been before or uh, go farther away to go to get their ALS care. Um, a lot of patients don't know that we even exist. Uh, a lot closer to their home uh, than a year ago. So,
0: and that's really important because that travel is tough. If they're Absolutely. going all the way to New York or to Philadelphia from right here, right? I mean, I know it took me it, like you're in Neptune, so <laughs> <laughs> it's far from Neptune. Anywhere. So one one other question I was thinking of though is the care is improving, the knowledge is improving. Is it getting easier to? diagnose people is it getting easier to kind of with biomarkers and other things no that this is probably happening sooner than later to kind of give people a better plan than it may have been years ago?
1: Yeah, so the research now is, is looking at biomarkers. Um, the, the difficult part about diagnosing ALS it's always been is um, there is no one test that you could do to tell someone they have ALS, and that is right. still kind of true. Uh, you need time, and you need the patient to progress sometimes to a certain extent just to claim themselves as ALS. And, of course, nobody wants to be told to come back in three or six months uh, and I'll see how your exam looks like to be able to give them a definitive diagnosis. So a lot of the research is happening is to try to find a biomarker, something that we can test for to say there is a good chance that you may have or may not have ALS. Um, so um, this is this is one of the exciting uh, parts of research right now in ALS is the biomarkers. Um, Unfortunately, there is still not one biomarker that we know of. The other the th- important thing about biomarkers is, is if you can identify a biomarker related to ALS, then you can measure its activity and, and you can tell if a drug is working or if it's not working hopefully, based on what these biomarkers are doing. So not only important for diagnosis, but also to monitor disease progression and see if certain drugs are or are not working. Or maybe the drug that works for one patient may not work for another patient. So it would be really nice to have a biomarker that we can uh, monitor throughout disease activity and use it for diagnosis. But I don't think we're there yet.
0: Well, and then the other thing with biomarkers, too, is if you can get a better sense of somewhere someone's (coughs) going to be at this stage in six months or a year... You can get them up to date with speech technology or with the right kind of wheelchair equipment.
1: You can anticipate, exactly.
0: And that's that's the toughest thing about your job is anticipating, I'm sure. Yes. Is biomarker, is that the most exciting form of ALS research right now? Is there anything else that's really... No,
1: there is a number of anti-inflammatory medications that are uh, in clinical trials, Uh, and uh, obviously, there is the new uh, uh, free radical scavenger, the Yeratikava uh, mm-hmm. or a Darabone, that was just FDA approved. Um, so uh, there is. Uh, stem cells, which is also another uh, very exciting part in the ALS clinical research. So uh, we're, there is Terasemtiv, which is uh, another drug that is, um, it doesn't really do much for ALS at, at all, but uh, can increase the uh, contractility of muscles, so it can make people stronger. Um, another one that we're waiting, Which is very important. Which is but, very important, yeah. of course. Uh, another one that, you know, we should have data on that, hopefully, pretty soon. So a lot of exciting things. It's a really exciting time to be doing ALS uh, because hopefully we'll be able to give people options and we haven't been before.
0: And one of the options I'm sure you're doing is you're connecting some people with clinical trials, letting them know. A lot of people with ALS, they want to get involved in research and a great thing about having a clinic here in Neptune at Hackensack Meridian is you can tell people these are things that might be appropriate for you.
1: Correct. And uh, the next step uh, that we're working on right now is hopefully to bring clinical research to our clinic uh, so people don't have to travel uh, to get, if they are interested in the research, the kind of research that we're doing.
0: Well, that's that's really um, important. It's really exciting that this clinic is so new and yet constantly, it seems, finding ways to improve the actual care and the access to care and the, the uh, geography of care, I guess I would say. Yes. Uh, so... Uh, we know we're advancing the mission at the ALS Association. Talk about 40 years ago, our chapter was in a shoebox, as our president Alan Phillips would say. Uh, and today, we're expanding to more clinics like this one here. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the either our anniversary or about uh, ALS clinical care?
1: Well, um, I think the chapter has been very supportive, and a special thank you because um, our patients here have had because of the uh, loaner wheelchair. Uh, program particularly we've a lot of our patients here have benefited from that program so a big thank you to having this kind of th- uh, uh, service for ALS patients because it is is very tough to tell an ALS patient that they have to wait three months to get their wheelchair uh, at which point probably by the time they get it they may not have little new have little use to it or it may not be even the appropriate uh, wheelchair anymore so uh, a big thank you to that um, and um Hopefully, just to tell everybody to please spread awareness about ALS, uh, talk to your friends about ALS, uh, get other people involved, and uh, um, uh, remember uh, to uh, share that there are ALS clinics out there and constantly look for new ALS clinics opening um, closer uh, to where patients are and uh, that can provide the care that they need without them having to travel too far.
0: Well, that's really important. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for ex- extending this care and get, extending us your time. I know it's valuable. My pleasure. And uh, also, for everyone listening, please look on our website for information about this clinic. That's alsphiladelphia.org. And look on our social media, all at ALS Philadelphia. Uh, our podcast is on iTunes and many other services. Please subscribe and review and, and share with your friends so we can spread more awareness, as Dr. Sedaris said. Also, as a final note, this weekend coming up, if this is up in time, is a Memorial Day weekend. ALS is considered a service-connected disease, and so look for more stories about veterans of ALS and and spread that message as well because people need to know both for helping the ALS cause, for advocacy, and other reasons. So thank you, Dr. Sedaris. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: Continue. Well, you had me. I'm here in your <laughs> office. <laughs> and we uh, hope to continue to advance mission for all ALS families.
1: Thanks.